May I say to you, Happy Easter. And uh, we're just very excited about this morning. Already, as I said, God has richly blessed us. If you are visiting for the first time, there's a, a card in front, as we've already said. And uh, please let us know who you are and put your name and drop that uh, in uh, at the Welcome Center. But uh, we thank you for coming and being with us this Easter morning. I am Pastor Don Westbrook. My wife and I have enjoyed pastoring this church for 46 years, and God has been very good to us. Uh, it's an honor to have my daughter with me today and the family, and we thank God for what he's doing for my son. As most of you know, Neil, my son, uh, had a tremendous aneurysm, and uh, at the point of death, he shouldn't be alive today, but God spared his life. He is now at Wake Med and doing very, very well considering where he has been. Every time we go over, we see improvement in Neil, and uh, we thank God. Would you praise God for that today? <laughs> Reading from St. Matthew chapter 28, by the way, all of the Gospels, all four Gospels carry the resurrection story. And it's because I believe they're the importance of the resurrection. Uh, someone has said that uh, the resurrection is by far one of the most important things or the most important things to happen in Christendom and the world. No one will argue that the resurrection didn't cause some dramatic changes in the lives of Jesus' followers. It is certainly undeniable, said Rick Warren. Jesus never wrote a book. In fact, he never wrote anything down, and yet there are more books written about Jesus than any other subject in the world. Jesus never composed a song, but there is more music written about Jesus Christ than any other subject bar none in history. Jesus never drew any pictures or did any sculpture, but more art has been made about Jesus Christ than any other subject in history. Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from where he was born, and yet you can find followers of Jesus in every nook and cranny of the planet. And his followers rank in the millions and the millions, the most popular religion in the world. And we thank God for that. So when it comes to a relationship, as Brother Larry Smith said earlier, it is very important to understand that Christendom is not necessarily about a religion. It is about a relationship, a relationship with a risen Savior. Jesus Christ. As I said, all four Gospels record the resurrection. I'd like, to, I'm choosing from the book of Matthew, read 10 verses, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 28 of St. Matthew. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Can you say amen? amen? As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went and quickly from the tomb, uh, went out quickly from the tomb with fear and with joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Jesus then said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. I provide an outline every Sunday morning for this sermon. And if you're here today, you did not get an outline, please raise your hand, and Brother Steve and others will make sure that you get one. We'd like for everyone to have an outline of the sermon. And there are many hands. You might want to help him, someone help him give those out. Look at the introduction. Change is in the air when God is involved. The resurrection of Jesus is synonymous with change. Old gives way to new. Death gives way to life. Deadness is transformed into something new and vital and life-giving. And I love this. Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and about the triumph of eternal life over death. With the resurrection come new hope, new possibilities, new life, new promise, and change. Let us consider some of the changes, some of the transformations that the resurrection Jesus has already made before before life was filled with despair, but now it has purpose, direction, and meaning. Before death was the end, but now it is just the beginning. The apostle Paul brought this to uh, a greater reality when he wrote to the church at Corinth. And he said in First Corinthians chapter 15, as we look at the scripture concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And notice what he says in 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, 
we are of all men the most pitiable. We are to be pitied. It is a sad thing if Christ be not raised. Notice the six things. The gospel preaching is vain if Christ is not risen. The gospel preaching is empty. The gospel preaching certainly is meaningless. It is a fairy tale. What man says to you, if Christ be not risen, the gospel message, my friend, is a story of fiction. Paul goes on to say, our faith is in vain. The faith that we exercise in Jesus Christ, if he didn't rise, it certainly is meaningless and empty. The apostles were false witnesses. Either they told the truth or they were deliberately telling a lie that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Most people, most all people believe that Jesus Christ lived. That history tells us that that is a reality. But then there are those that do not believe that he rose again the third day. Let me tell you something. If I was going to tell this as a lie, I would not have used the women like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John used. And I'll tell you why. Because women could not be used as witnesses. They had to ask their husbands much of what they said. They couldn't go into the uh, public without uh, certain rules and regulations. They could not go into a court, get on a witness stand, and tell anything because they were not believed. And yet, if this is a lie, God Almighty, the, the disciples, the writers of the New Testament, use the women? Oh, yes. Don't underestimate ladies, guys, because they were the first to carry the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ be not risen, the apostles were false witnesses. If Christ be not risen, we're still in our sins. Then he's a liar because he said he would rise. The apostles were liars. They were lunatics. Jesus Christ was a lunatic if he did not rise. If he did not rise we are still in our sins. Paul says, if he did not rise, believers perish at death. I've preached hundreds of funerals. And I believe that the life of Jesus Christ takes mankind beyond the grave. It gives man hope beyond the grave. But if he did not rise, we have no hope beyond the grave. We're dying in our sins And sad to say, there is no hope. If he did not rise, Christians are to be pitied. They're a sad group of people. We gather here this morning and we are to be pitied if he did not rise. Because we believe in a false Messiah and because we are often ridiculed and persecuted and put down. So if Christ did not rise, Christians are to be pitied. But, as Dan Saldana say, there's more. 
there's more. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I love that verse. I love that verse. Notice it again. Paul says, For he, who is he? God. For he made him. Who's him? Jesus. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Who's us? Us. You. Me. Christ did not know sin, but God placed on him, on that cross, all the sins of the world. And that's the reason that God Almighty had to turn his back on his own son, hanging on the cross because God could not look upon sin. Notice what it says. I'll read it again. For he who, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we, who's, who are we? We are us. Every man, every woman, every person that will accept the atoning work of Calvary. For he made us that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that sounds like a fairy tale itself, knowing how righteous God is, knowing how pure and holy that God is that cannot look on sin, that you and I, that mankind, that every believer might become the righteousness of God. That shouting grounds, my friend, Because our righteousness is his filthy rags. But yet Jesus Christ, he made us righteous. Paul said, if Christ be not raised. But notice number two. If Christ has been raised, it validates everything that Jesus Christ said about himself. If Christ has been raised, and he was, it verifies our justification, Romans chapter 4. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. I'm glad to know that as human beings, through and by the toning work of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that followed three days later, that I can stand justified before God. My guilt was great, but he was greater. He wiped it away. He wiped it away. He washed it away. If Christ be raised, it demonstrates the power available to the Christian. Paul, right into the church at Ephesus, says in chapter 1, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints 
and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Now you can hang your hat on that. You can face eternity with that. You can face death. Powerful verses of Scripture. He has been raised. And then number three, it gives us hope concerning our resurrection. The apostle Peter, which was dramatically changed through and by the resurrection. One that denied Jesus Christ before he was crucified. One that told Jesus, I will never forsake thee. And yet he did forsake him and cursed and said, I don't even know him. But yet after the resurrection of Christ, this timid backwood fisherman knew about Jesus Christ's resurrection. And here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ, from the dead. He he did rise. Paul said he did rise. You know how Paul knew he rose? Because Paul met him on the way to Damascus. Literally met Jesus Christ. One that he denied one that said he was dead. Paul, the apostle before, was Saul, the, the tormentor of the Christians and the persecutor of the Christians. And yet he met Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus and said, what, Lord, would you have me to do? And from that day forward, his whole life was wrapped up in that one thing that he knew that Jesus Christ rose again. Ah. Oh. You see, you and I identify with his death. The Bible says we are crucified. You and I, the believer, the person that puts their trust in the Lord, we are crucified with Christ. Yet, not I live, but Christ that lives in me. Yet I live, but Christ lives in me. We identify not only with his death, but we identify with his life. Why do those saints act like they do? Why do those people sing like they do? Why do they frail their arms and lift their hands and their voices are raised to a pitch like it is? Why are they acting like they act? Why did they do what they do and act like they act under certain circumstances when the world is wringing its hands and the world is so worried and tormented? Does that mean we don't have problems? No, we have problems. But those saints act like that because they have that resurrection power on the inside. That's not something we just talk about. It's something that's real. It is something that is powerful. And it is something that alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest life-altering event in history, must change everything about what you believe and how you live forever. You say, how do we do that? Through and by the power of the resurrection. Somebody says, I can't live right. When I want to do good, Paul said evil is always present. If I want to tell the truth, the lie pops out. 
If I, if I want to serve the Lord, then I struggle with all kind of emotions and all kind of unforgiveness and all of, these, all of these things happen to me. How, pastor, do I live right? Listen to this. Through and by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus Christ came, listen to this, to fulfill the law. The law says if you sin, you must die. The law says thou shalt not steal, and we shouldn't. The law says thou shalt not commit adultery, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't do those things. But man did not have the power to abide by the law and keep the law. And then Jesus Christ comes along and ushers in the power of the resurrection, the power for you and I to live right. You see, I sin as much as I want to sin. I just don't want to. That's the thing about God. That's the thing about serving Him. He changes you want to. And I believe when we come to Jesus Christ, He changes our behavior, our thinking, our life, our families, our homes, our churches, our nations. He changes those things about us. One of the greatest changes caused by the resurrection was in the character of the disciples. Notice under Roman numeral number four. How did 12 peasant fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, how in the world did they multiply 12 followers of Jesus Christ to one out of every three people on the planet identifying now with, as Christians? It is the answer is the, is the resurrection. In no time, in 300 and some years, The Romans had the Christians killed. And yet in 300 and some years, after God gave Constantine a vision, Christianity became the legal religion. And it went from 1% to 99%. How does that happen? God. You see, God does things like that. They had previously, talking about the disciples, been timid, afraid, and depressed after witnessing the arrest and suffering of Jesus. But after, say after, after his resurrection, they became aggressive. These 11 plus another one, not only did they become aggressive, they became bold. They were full of joy. You say, well, well, they had it easy. Oh, no, they did not. Most of them, if not, well, not all of them, but they were martyrs for the Lord. They suffered. They were beaten. All kind of tribulation, but they had joy unspeakable and certainly full of glory. The post-resurrection disciples had life. Do you have life? You say, Pastor, I'm a Christian. Do you have life? Do you act like it? You act like you have victory. That's what God desires. That's how, that, that's how that God uses the believer to change other people. One of the ways the post-resurrection disciples had life. Their circumstances didn't matter. They had joy in the midst of suffering and peace in the midst of turmoil. 
Nothing could take away their passion arising from the everlasting life they'd receive from the resurrected Christ. He's alive. He's living. And he's alive today. Notice the last part of the sermon. The resurrection of Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. And for everyone that's ever known Christ, served him truly, they know what that means. Peter talks about it being joy unspeakable and full of glory. The resurrection of Jesus turns our fear into peace. You know, the Bible says in Psalms chapter 30 and verse 5, it says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes. When? In the morning. Joy comes in the morning. The resurrection of Jesus turns our doubt into assurance. Somebody said, you believe, can you really believe and know that you are uh, ready for heaven, and then if you would die today, or if Jesus Christ would come, you'd go to heaven? Yes. You can know without a shadow of a doubt. We're going to sing in just a few minutes the song. In your hymn book, it's a song that says he lives. You ask me how I know he lives, because he lives within my heart. And number four, the resurrection of Jesus turns our guilt into forgiveness and commission. Jesus Christ saves us. He forgives us. He removes our guilt. He forgives us. And we know we are forgiven. And then he commissions us to go and make disciples all over the world. And that's what it's all about. It's living the life that Jesus has called us to live. Philip never quite belonged. He was pleasant enough, but he looked different and sometimes seemed unusual to his eight-year-old classmates. A few weeks before Easter, Philip's Sunday school teacher gave the kids a plastic egg. You know, the kind that can come apart in the middle. The teacher told each child to go outside, find a symbol for new life, and put it in the egg. Back in the classroom, one by one, the eggs were opened, and each child explained the meaning of his symbol. In one egg was a pretty flower, and another butterfly. The kids oohed and awed. In one egg was a rock, and that made the kids laugh. Finally, they came to the last egg, Philip's egg. The teacher opened it, and there was nothing. That's stupid, said one kid. Someone didn't do it right, grumbled another. The teacher felt a tug on her skirt. It was Philip. That's mine, he said, and I did do it right. It's empty. Because the tomb was empty. From that time on, Philip was accepted as part of the group, but he struggled with physical problems. And that summer, he picked up an infection 
that most kids would have shaken off, but Philip's weak body couldn't handle it. And a few weeks later, he died. At his funeral, nine eight-year-olds with their teacher brought a symbol of remembrance of Philip and placed it near his coffin, not flowers or written message, but an empty egg, a symbol to them of new life and new hope. Make no bones about it. Make no mistake. That tomb was empty. Josh McDowell, magna cum laude, very, very smart man. Josh McDowell set out to disprove the resurrection. We've had Josh McDowell to preach for us, minister, just a great man of God, very, very wise man. He spent hours and hundreds of hours reading, researching, studying. Within his mind, he was going to disprove the resurrection. But in all of his studying, and all of his searching, here was this agnostic that had to come to the conclusion that the resurrection was a sure thing. It happened. And he's preached it all over the world, written book after book, evidence that demands a verdict. And the verdict was, after his Hundreds of hours of studying. The verdict was by Josh McDowell. He rose. That tomb, no doubt, was empty. Jesus Christ did die. They buried him. They rolled the stone over that grave opening. And they sealed it. They sealed it with the seal of Pilate and the leaders. And they stationed guards there. And no one but no one could get beyond the guards or the seal that was on the mouth of that tomb. He was dead. It kind of reminds me of this writer's tale concerning the world. World history is something like a cosmic chess match between God and Satan. God made the first move by creating the entire universe and everything in it. Satan made a counter move when he decided to rebel against God's authority, when he made a vain attempt to overthrow the throne of God. God responds by casting Lucifer out of heaven. Satan then makes his move. He tempts the woman that God created to sin against God and lead her husband into sin. God counters by creating a redemptive covering and slaying an animal so salvation would be provided for the first parents. Satan responds by getting Cain to kill his brother Abel and thus eliminate the godly line that would bring the Messiah into the world. God makes his move when he allows Seth to be born, Seth thus reinstating the godly line. 
Satan counters with his next move, demonized angels, infiltrated ungodly men to produce a demonized race. God responds in raising up a man named Noah, tells him to build a ship on dry land and preach only one sermon. It's going to rain. Satan responds with a man named Nimrod to build two civilizations, Syria and Babylon. His plan was to bring humanism into the world. It's God's move again. God responds by tearing down the tower, confounding the languages, and choosing to make a special nation that will honor and love him. So he goes to the land of Ur and tells a man by the name of Abram that he will make him a great nation. Satan, he says, I got another move. Now, God, you can have that move all you want to. But Satan says, okay, I will take that nation and tempt them to sin, lead them into bondage where they will be servants of ungodly people for 400 years. Devil, you think you got the last move? God makes his move. He raises up a man named Moses and sends him to Pharaoh and tells him the God that is the I am says, let my people go. Can you see how all of history is like a cosmic chess game where God makes a move and Satan counters that move? Moves and counter moves until you get to the end of the Old Testament and then it seems like it's a standoff. For 400 years, there was silence, not a word from God. It was quiet. Then you have the New Testament. Evidently, at this point, it's God's move again. Because Matthew opens the New Testament with this person begat that person until you finally get to the verse 16 where Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now Satan counters. He has a Roman guard. To seal the tomb. He's dead. He's not breathing. This one that was to save mankind. God's only son. God you thought that was a good move. Look at that seal on that tomb. Satan. Has the Roman guards. To seal the tomb. They guard it. They threaten to kill anyone that touches that seal. At this point Satan. Looks like he has the last move. Laughing, smiling, he thought it was over. He sat poised to yell, checkmate. The disciples hid in fear. The women wept. It appeared that all hope was gone. But wait, there's more. The young disputed divine chess player that orchestrated this entire plan of redemption by the way said things aren't nearly as bad as they seem there is another move on the board arise my darling son arise He did. 
And he seeks, he saves by the power of his resurrection life. And we, according to Peter, were begotten or born by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That, my friend, is how he saves, by the power of the resurrection. Oh, yeah. Jesus turns to Satan, looks and says, Devil, checkmate. You have a son or a daughter, and the devil tells you that he has stolen them away. They're out of church. They're not serving God. Maybe they're into a lifestyle that is so contrary to the word of God. And the devil laughs at you every time you go to pray. The devil laughs at you every time you think of your son or your daughter. And he says, checkmate. But wait. Not checkmate yet. That son, that daughter, no matter how far away From God they go. They can't get away from the presence of the resurrected Jesus Christ. I believe that. You've been hurting. Your body is racked with pain. Maybe the doctors have said you have cancer. I know what that feels like. Maybe the doctor says this is terminal. And fear tries to grip your life. And the devil whispers in the wee hours of the night and says, checkmate. But God said, not so. By my stripes, Jesus said, you are healed. And many are here today. We have so many in this audience today that the devil looked at you when you went to the doctor and said, checkmate because you have cancer. But God said, not so. Not so. You tried to live a good life. You tried to serve God. And every time you you get up, you fall back. And you tried to resist that temptation to lust. You say, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to go to that website any longer. And you find yourself going there. I'm not going to look any longer. And you find yourself looking. I'm not going to say those words anymore. I'm not going to doubt God anymore. And then you find yourself weak and struggling. And the devil says to you, checkmate. God says, not yet. Not yet. There's one more move. And it's the power and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. No matter your, whatever your condition is, no matter wherever you are, no matter what you go through, and the devil screams out to you or even whispers to you, checkmate. Understand, there's always one more move, and God gets the last word. And God takes the last move. Your soul today, where is it at? What if Jesus Christ would come off? Pastor, you believe all that stuff that Jesus is coming? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why do you believe he's coming? Because he told 
the prophets and the writers in the Old Testament that he was coming for the first time. And he told how he would come. He even told how he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And all those scriptures came true just like he said. Josh, there's about 50 some promises of Christ's first coming, being born of a virgin, the city he would be born in, all of that. Hundreds of years before, Isaiah, the major prophets, the minor prophets, told about his first coming, and all of them came true, just like he said. Josh McDowell said if you just took about eight or ten of those promises, for them to come to pass just like they said, was this remote. Listen to me. If you went to the state of Texas, took silver dollars, stacked them one foot high all over the state of Texas, took one silver dollar and painted that one silver dollar, threw it out anywhere you wanted to in the state of Texas, and then you mixed all of those coins took a person and blindfolded them and started them at the Texas state line, blindfolded. The chances of them walking and finding that one coin would be just as possible as all those scriptures that were promised hundreds of years early. Quite an account. And if the one that told that Jesus was coming the first time, how he would come, when he would come, and all of those things, if he tells me Jesus is coming again, I am going to believe him. It is going to come to pass. But let's say today that you would die before the resurrection or before the rapture rather takes place. Say you would die. The Bible says in Hebrews, not a morbid message. Listen at me. I know it's the resurrection, but we all need to understand. The Bible says in Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. I want to be ready, don't you? Don't you let the devil check make you and make you think you can accept Jesus Christ and have the eternal power that comes from the resurrection because he'll save you You'll have eternal life if you simply believe. Let us bow our heads and let us pray.